Welcome to part 3 of the Prevention, Diagnosis, Treatment and Following Heart Failure webinar recording. This webinar was recorded on the 5th of November 2021. Both uh, uh, speakers made very good points actually. Thank you very much for that. And uh, I was just trying to see uh, the question and answer section and uh, that um, uh, maybe you didn't see, but I think uh, the last words of Sadi uh, was very effective among some colleagues who were saying that, you know, this is touching uh, to the GPs, you know. So you are saying that, you know, the cardiologists are having a little bit different uh, than the internist or internal medicine uh, concept, let's say. And uh, this is really, we didn't think about it until now, maybe. But now when you say something like that, when we think about it, the comments are like that also. They are saying that they are surprised that you are telling it yourself as a uh, very well-known cardiologist. But also it might be correct that uh, somehow we are losing the uh, biopsychosocial uh, approach of the patient and the individual personal care also sometimes uh, if we are thinking about ourselves like a surgeon um, yeah and I, yeah, and I, yeah. I, think, if I think if we look at the, look at the um, that that comment from Sadi is uh, unfortunately borne out from research so we were part of quite a big survey um, of about 12 countries where we looked at patients who had unstable heart failure, i.e. they had elevated natriuretic peptides. And these patients were referred to a cardiologist or a geriatrician um, in some countries uh, for advice. And unfortunately, there was virtually no change in treatment recommendations despite this. And the main reason for that, I think, was because in these health systems, they only saw the specialist once and the specialist wasn't going to be able to follow them up and therefore didn't actually initiate any changes to therapy. Um, so unfortunately, it does fall in many health systems if the GPs don't get more actively involved in heart failure follow-up, then the patient is not likely to get much treatment um, recommendation change. Yeah, just there, there is a question uh, from Thomas saying that what is the potential increase, potential of increasing patients' adherence to improve the outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is part of what you were saying, Mehmet, that, that I think with somebody with heart failure, they've got an additional chronic medical problem. And as with all patients with chronic medical problems, when we first um, diagnose the condition, we want to sit down with the patient and briefly, has to be brief because we haven't got that long to spend, but you still need to briefly help the patients understand why you're using treatments. And of course, with heart failure, you're using them both to improve symptoms, but just as importantly, you're doing it to extend their lives. And they need to understand that 
and need to understand that that's the reason they're taking medication. And they also need to understand that you are going to almost certainly prescribe more than one drug. You're going to prescribe two or three drugs um, because they each work independently of each other and taking all of them gives the patient the best chance of better symptoms and longer life. Um, and that obviously now includes SGLT2s, which is a significant step for primary care, because if we're already a little bit behind with existing treatments, we need to be encouraged to think that um, we should be adding in SGLT2s. As Sadi said, the fortunate thing about that is that they are much easier to use than GPs probably think they are. Um, but they are they are uh, a new um, class that we do need to be uh, introducing. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we must we must talk. We, we need to spare some time for them. They should know what what what's back what is expecting. So um, I mean, if if they know what is in beneficial for them, then I don't think that they would not accept this. But you must spare some time. And another thing is maybe the uh, more use of single pill combinations to improve the adherence. Uh, yes, as you know, uh, it's very important to, to use single pill combinations uh, to adhere the to adhere the adherence of them. Um, that's what, what I have to add, Richard. There are interesting questions. Maybe we still have time, you know. Uh, Sadi, one of them is, um, one of our colleagues are thanking to your presentation also, but uh, he, she says that, do you recommend using dabagliflozin and ampaglifluzin on the patients who have diabetes, but not heart failure, but has a family history of heart failure? as a prevention? Uh, well, Mehmet, actually there are some studies that, that have been conducted in high-risk patients with diabetes, and the results were very in favor of using SGL2 inhibitors because they improve the survival in this kind of patients. So it, it, it is not necessary that the patient should have heart failure to initiate these drugs. These drugs are very beneficial even in those with diabetes and let's say coronary artery disease. If you use these drugs in this kind of patients, then we, we may have a very good opportunity to improve the survival. Uh -huh. yep. I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. I, I think remember that in diabetes, the main reason you're going to initiate an SGLT2 is to improve the um, blood glucose um, and there are uh, obviously different classes of drugs you can use to that but at the moment the use of um, is more commonly things like sulfonylureas but we know they're associated with very significant risks of hypoglycemia uh, or DPP4s which are commonly used they only improve blood glucose there's no beneficial effects on, on vascular events. And of course, in all patients, we'll be using uh, metformin. And the reason for that is it's not that effective at reducing blood sugar, 
but it does have a modest effect on vascular uh, events. And as we know, diabetes is, patients with diabetes are going to get accelerated vascular events. And yet now we've got a class of drugs that will improve um, blood glucose um, and also very significantly improve vascular outcomes. So uh, it's, it's certainly logical to consider in anybody who has um, ex increased vascular risk, uh, other risk factors for vascular disease, or poor family history, etc., it would be perfectly reasonable to add in an SGLT2 ahead of using something like a DPP4. And personally, I would use them ahead of uh, sulfonyl ureas as well. So, um, and that's permitted in the guidelines. So it's certainly a reasonable practice. Uh, another question in connection with this one, uh, just to continue. Uh, how we explain patients that they are getting anti-diabetic medication when they do not have a diabetes medication? This is the question. Well, I mean, these days, frankly, you, you're not going to introduce SGLT2 as a diabetic medication. It is a drug which has multiple effects on metabolism. Um, it, it does improve their blood glucose, but it is used in this instance, it's been used because of its primary effects on, on heart failure. We're going to get the same issue because of this class of drugs are going to be increasingly used as well for um, CKD. Um, so that's going to be yet another uh, big uh, clinical indication for the class. So I think we're going to have, we're going to find better ways of describing them. Um, whether that is that they basically are drugs that influence beneficially influence a lot of aspects of metabolism, I think we'll we'll probably be experimenting with how how we talk about them. But they aren't just um, diabetic drugs; they're drugs that influence blood glucose alongside lots of other um, physical parameters. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, the Name this drug as uh, anti-diabetic drugs that uh, reduce cardiovascular outcomes. But I name this class as a heart pill that reduces uh, blood uh, glucose. So, so it, it's not only an anti-diabetic. So uh, we can, as you see in the DAPA-HF trial, uh, the non-diabetics has a great yeah. benefit of using this drug. So. Please do not name it as only an anti-diabetic. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Yeah, that, that's very good to know it, actually, from our side, actually. So one question is from a cardiologist, I think. Thank you so much for the great presentation. How can we prescribe SGLT2 inhibitor as a cardiologist? It's only our decision, or we have to consult with endocrinology. What is your opinion? The I, I don't think I don't I don't think that we have to consult this with an endocrinologist because, uh, as you see in the DAPA H failure trial, diabetic, the being diabetic is not necessary to to initiate this uh, group of medications. So uh, it's not necessary to consult with endocrinologists, and maybe it is one of the most user-friendly drugs that we can face it at all. Yeah, there is no uh, a clear contraindication for this drug. 
it's, Aha, it's okay. very easy to initiate it, and uh, we do not have uh, such a, a hard measures for the follow-up. So, uh, no need for a endocrinologist consultation, that's what I guess. Perfect. So, another question is, you know, very interesting. One of the reasons the doctor, GPs, general practitioners, family doctors fear using higher dose range of medication is risk of hypotension in elderly frail patients causing falls. Is that something justified? One colleague asks. Is that for me? Yeah, for, you know, whichever, you know, I mean, just this is something like the better blockers, for example. Sometimes we are really, in practice, we see that, you know, the, 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 it increases the falls, you know, for the uh, elderly patients. So is that something also works? I mean, that is there a kind of... Uh, causing falls, is that, a ju is that, is that justified? Is, is, was that work or is there any kind of result on any studies causing falls or something? No, I mean, it, it has a marginal yeah. effect on blood pressure. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, like with all initiating all new treatments, particularly with somebody with heart failure, you're going to follow up um, and recheck things like blood pressure. But it has a marginal effect on um, blood pressure dynamics. And uh, remember, the important thing from the trial was that actually adverse events in the yeah. trial was equivalent to taking placebo. So it wasn't observed as a significant um, issue. But obviously, you would monitor um, blood pressure and indeed pulse in all of your patients with, with heart failure. But just coming back to the, the, the other message about how simple these treatments are, I mean, in Dapper HF, it's 10 milligrams once daily of dapagliflozacin, which is, you know, basically one pill a day therapy is means it's pretty easy to initiate. Yeah. Uh, one of our colleagues, uh, well known about the work on diabetes in general practice, he's, he's, he's really organizing very good conferences about it, and he's asking, would you treat a diabetic patient with SGL2 with, without previous diagnosis of heart failure? Without heart failure, would you would you use this drug for the diabetes patient? Of course I do. Of course I do. Because first, it's an anti-diabetic drug first, and secondly, it reduces cardiovascular events. So why do not? Uh, I think I think. Um, the answer is yes, definitely yes. I mean, in, to be honest, I think if, if we personally develop diabetes, then what drugs are we going to take? And I can tell you, I would not want to take a sulfonylurea because, yes, it's cheap. Well, it's cheap on direct drug costs, but I wouldn't want to be risking hypoglycemia. I, I wouldn't bother with a DPP-4 personally because, yes, it will drop my blood sugar, but it's not going to provide me with any added benefits. So personally, I would take, uh, I would want a, a, an SGLT2 inhibitor. And if that wasn't sufficient, then I'd want a GLP-1. Um, and I think, frankly, um, guidelines are often driven much more by what's the lowest cost of something rather than what is in the best interests of our patients. 
But of course, that doesn't necessarily factor in all these secondary costs, because as soon as you start getting patients needing to be admitted to hospital, the cost of the individual drugs goes completely out of the window, because all of the costs associated with admissions, um, if you can avoid those, then, you know, that factors in, that should be factoring into our decision. Um, then, uh, can I ask you, uh, what about the heart failure patients? Do they have any kind of, you know, um, um, problems in their private life? You know, can you just summarize which you are, probably you have, you have seen more heart failure patients than many of us, so that's the reason I'm asking. What are the uh, tips that you, you could uh, give us about specific questions or interesting questions your patients ask? And uh, not about the treatment, but maybe just you can say to us that those are the interesting questions and those are the answers. If you ask me, uh, maybe they, uh, they got scared of asking or they got shy of asking, but the, the, the important question is, is it safe to have sex for heart failure patients? Can I talk about this? Yes, yes, please, please, just go on. This is an interesting question. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. It's safe to have sex for heart failure patients. Actually, it depends on how sick they are, but in fact, the energy consumption of sexual activity is similar to mild to moderate exercise. So, if a patient can walk up Two flights of stairs, they can have sex with their partners. But if they want to have sex with someone else, then they have to be able to climb four flights of stairs. <laughs> and you know why? Because having sex with a stranger or with someone other than a usual partner, especially if they are much younger, requires more physical effort, Mehmet, as twice much as the usual partner. Uh, and most of the cardiac deaths occur and most of the cardiac deaths occur while having sex with someone else, okay? So heart failure patients should think twice before cheating on their partners. <laughs> Do you think that the SGLT2 will be very beneficial about it also? <laughs> um, I, I have no idea. Honestly, uh, I have no idea about that. Sure, but sure, maybe but if you, if you, if you, uh, if you help uh, the vessels and the heart, then I believe that you will help the uh, erectile dysfunction as well. So it may improve the erectile dysfunction, but uh, there is no study demonstrating any, anything about that. Well, I mean, if, if, if I gave a comment that um, was slightly less useful sure. um, than those comments, Sadi, but at least it applies to women as well as men, it would be up. Oh, well, actually, that's a terrible thing to say because, of course, uh, women may be as likely to have an extramarital affair as men, I suppose. Um, so I better take that one back. But um, the one thing I would encourage you to talk about with your patients is that many of them are significantly reduced in lifestyle. They don't do as much visiting and shopping and family occasions because they're often limited by symptoms. But they'll often think that that's because they've got old. So they think that they're short of breath and unable to do things just because they've got old. And of course, if they've got heart failure, it is likely to be primarily down to their condition. And what they need to understand is that by taking evidence-based medications, 
they will actually, in most cases, get an improvement in their um, symptoms sufficient to improve their quality of life. So you want to encourage them not to just accept their reduced physical state, but to feel that actually by attempting more um, more management, more active management, and that also includes increasing exercise, etc., which might um, be in the bed rather than on the um, on the walking around the park. But whatever the exercise is, that's worth increasing as well. But it is worth them trying to improve their quality of life. That's a, and not to just accept that a slow decline is inevitable. Perfect. And it gets more interesting and interesting. Now I'm just turning back to the last question because I think we are all, almost over time. And uh, I would really continue one hour more with this kind of you know, conversation, which is lovely. And uh, very beneficial, by the way. And uh, I think I shouldn't uh, leave this behind. Uh, he's asking if SGLT2 inhibitors cause urinary system infection. What do you think about this? This is the question. Well, what I, what I know is they increase the incidence of genital infections. Not the urine, not the urinary tract, but maybe, maybe some increase in the urinary tract infections as well. But the main problem is the genital yeast infections, increased incidence of genital yeast infections. So the hygiene of the diaper region is very important in patients who are using SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, uh, that's it. That's it. I mean, basically, these drugs are reducing glucose by increasing the excretion of glucose and you can imagine a more sugary urine because you're excreting glucose is going to increase the likelihood of things like yeast infections so i think as has been said it is unfortunately one of the known risk factors very rarely you can get more serious infections down there and therefore patients should be aware that they are a, a slightly increased risk of this and you would give the same advice as you'd give anybody who um, developed yeast or candidal um, infections uh, down below. It's the same sort of advice about helping to avoid it. Thank you very much, really, for both of you. I mean, this is an excellent summary uh, from both of you and uh, I think we would very much like to continue but it, we already completed our time and I hope we can do one more, you know, because you are very good. I would like you to be together, both of you, in another uh, session if it's possible for the future. So uh, I am thankful to you if, because you have accepted in the very last moment and although you are very having very, very, you know, workload is really increased for you, I know. And Rich, Richard, just say, I know that it was not the best day for you, but I think you are already uh, putting yourself uh, for us for today. Thank you very much for participation and very good summary. Uh, I am um, more than happy to be with you, and I think we have to end it here. Uh, thank you. And the video is in our website. I, I would ask you if you can watch or recommend those old colleagues who would like to
to see your comments here because they are all very important comments. Thank you. And, and given that it's a Friday evening after the end of a busy week, thank you very much for the audience um, because uh, I think we're both very pleased that we weren't um, talking to nobody, but actually there's been a very good audience this evening. So thank you for hanging on um, to listen yeah. to us this evening. A few minutes ago, I have seen more than 180 people are right now online. So this is because of you, I think. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend, so everyone. Much. Bye. Have a good weekend. Enjoy. Bye-bye.